This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. For this episode, we're happy to present a recent public conversation between Sadia Rahman and their sister, Bushra Rahman. Sadia's featured artist in the Wex's Winter-Spring 2023 exhibitions with the solo show, The River Runs Slow and Deep, and All the Bones of My Ancestors have risen to the surface to knock and click like the sounds of trees in the air. Bushra is an acclaimed poet and storyteller. Her latest book, the coming-of-age novel Roses in the Mouth of a Lion, was a New York Times book review editor's choice and was named one of the best books of 2022 by NPR. The talk shares the warm and supportive dynamic between the siblings as it illuminates their respective working processes, how they approach medium, and how the history of their family has fueled what they created. Emily Haydett, the WEX's Community, Public, and Academic Programs Manager, introduces them. Uh, I'm Emily Haydett. I'm part of the Learning and Public Practice team here at the WEX, um, and I'm happy to welcome you to this program featuring Sadia Rahman and Bushra Rahman. I use she, her pronouns. Uh, my brown hair is pulled back in a clip. I'm wearing a green sweater, textured sweater, trying to invoke spring a little bit. Um, I'm joining you from the WEX's lobby where we're hosting our program today. So over the summer, uh, when Sadia and Dion Custer Edwards and I were thinking about public programs around the exhibition, Sadia really expressed that it would be lovely to host a conversation between them and their sister Bushra, of course, an accomplished writer and artist in her own right. So today, Sadia and Bushra will explore their respective practices, connections in their work, and identities as siblings. So at the end of the conversation, um, we're going to open it up to Q&A, both in person and also those attending virtually uh, can ask a question. I want to quickly thank and acknowledge our donors. Learning and public practice programs are made possible by the American Electric Power Foundation, Huntington, the Martha Holden, Jennings Foundation, and the Big Lots Foundation. Support for learning and public practice residencies are provided by Mike and Paige Crane. I'm now going to introduce our speakers. Sadia Rahman explores how contemporary and historical images communicate, consolidate, and contest ideas about race, empire, and labor. Rahman has exhibited work at venues including the National Museum of Women in the Arts, Queens Museum, Kentler International Drawing Space, Asian Pacific American Institute at NYU, and Pakistan National Council for the Arts, among many others. Rahman received the Amina Brenda Lynn Robinson Fellowship, the Meredith Morabito and Henrietta Mantooth Full Fellowship, and was awarded several residencies. Rahman's work has been featured in the Brooklyn Rail, New York Times, Harper's Magazine, Hyperallergic, Color Lines, and Art Papers. Sadia's exhibition, uh, which you all got to take a look at, is on view at the WEX through July 9th. Bushra Rahman's dark comedy, Corona, was chosen by the New York Public Library as one of its favorite books about New York City. She's the co-editor of Colonize This, Young Women of Color on Today's Feminism, and author of a collection of poetry, Mariana's Beauty Salon, described by Joseph O. Legaspi as a love poem for Muslim girls, queens, and immigrants making sense of their foreign home and surviving. Her new novel, Roses in the Mouth of a Lion, which is available in the WEX store, 
is a modern classic about what it means to be Muslim and queer in a Pakistan-American community, was chosen as a best book and editor's choice by the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, and more. So we're gonna begin uh, with a reading from Bushra before we jump into conversation. Please join Bushra. Hey everyone, thank you so much for coming out. And um, my name is Bushra Rahman. I have brown hair that is open with lots of white in it too. Um, I'm wearing a green sweater and blue jeans and I have brown eyes. And I just wanna thank the Wex and Emily and Dion um, and everyone who's been part of this committee because the show is just so amazing. And um, I've been loving walking around and seeing the incredible exhibits. And it's just been such a thoughtful, process as we've been planning this event uh, and it means a lot so as we were sharing with them Sadi and I have been working artists side by side for decades but we've never actually sat down and I mean obviously we talk all the time but we've never had a conversation in public about our art although in private we are constantly talking about our family and art so I'm going to read to you from Roses and then I'll I'll read the title poem if we have time and maybe one more poem too um, all right, so roses in the mouth of a lion. So it's interesting, like Sadia's art is about what our family's life was in Pakistan, and I write a lot about what our family's life was like in Queens, New York City, in a working class immigrant neighborhood. Um, and my father, what happened was when he came here, um, they were living in an apartment in Brooklyn, and there were these other Pakistani people in the apartment, and those people, New York City life are still were their best friends until, you know, the end of their lives. And um, what they did was they decided to move to Queens and start a masjid. And so they built this Pakistani, very tight-knit Pakistani uh, religious community around that masjid in Queens. And I write a lot about that community. So the chapter I'm going to read is not the first chapter, but all you need to know is that Razia is the main character, her best friend, the Slima, um, and her are kind of rebellious, and the way that they're rebelling is they like to listen to pop music, like to American Top 40, you know? Um, and so at the time, because this is a historical novel, it's from the 80s, um, <laughs> you know, they're listening to Casey Kasem's American Top 40, you know? But the hilarious thing, which, you know, of course, Amer uh, cult no culture is static. Culture is constantly changing, evolving. They think they're, you know, participating in American culture, but Tiffany, you know, the artist Tiffany, who wrote, you know, I think, who, I mean, who sang, not wrote, um, I think we're alone now, is actually Arab. Her last name was Darwish, Tiffany Darwish. <laughs> um, Casey Kasem, also Arab. You know, so there's this funny way that they uh, believe that they're doing something really rebellious, but they're still participating in, you know, <laughs> Arab-American culture. Um, all right, this is called Clock Radio. On Saturday mornings, I went to the Slima's house as early as possible so I could catch Casey Kasem's American Top 40. We were like junkies at the racetrack. If our songs were called, we felt we were winning. When our songs fell behind, we were personally insulted. The Slima got away with listening to music in a way I never could. She had a mother who wasn't as religious, a door she could lock, and a clock radio. Well, it was her sister Eliza's clock radio. Their father had given it to Eliza so she could get to Flushing High School on time not realizing that now Eliza, and by extension and me and Taslima, could listen to music as much as we wanted, with just the press of a button and the turn of a dial. We listened every second we got, the volume turned down low. I loved that clock radio. The time was told in neon red digits. 
There were smooth buttons all along its light purple surface. Not light purple, Taslima always insisted, making fun of the way her sister Eliza said it. Lavender. Lavender was a very popular world <laughs> among the queer community, but also in the 80s. Um, one Saturday, we were propped up on Taslima's pillows, our heads close to the clock radio. Our talking was interrupted by the pre-recorded chorus, Casey's coast to coast, and the distinct rasp of his voice. Hello again, and welcome to American Top 40. My name's Casey Kasem, and we're counting down the Billboard Top Hits. These are the records you're buying and record stations are playing all across America as rated by Billboard magazine. I turned to Taslima. Isn't it a catch-22? The radio plays the songs people buy, and people buy the songs the radio plays. God, ever since you read Catch-22, you think everything's a Catch-22. <laughs> I'm going to tell Eliza to stop lending you her books. The chorus sang, American Top 40, and Casey Kasem continued. Now, what you've been waiting for, this week's number one song in the land. We sat up excited. I think we're alone now, from the album Tiffany. That's the girl herself, 16-year-old Tiffany with I Think We're Alone Now. Taslima and I jumped out of bed. For weeks, we'd been doing endless renditions in front of the mirror. Even though we made fun of the way Tiffany danced, it ended up becoming the way we danced. And you should watch the video so you'll know what I'm <laughs> later when you know what I'm talking about. Putting our hands through our hair, winking, and doing a weird herky-jerky wave with our chests. We strained our voices, trying to hit Tiffany's high notes. Feel free to sing along with me. I think we're alone now. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be anyone around. <laughs> there was a banging on the door. It was Eliza. Tasima, what are you doing in there? It sounds like an earthquake, and you're not alone. We can all hear you. <laughs> we turned off the radio but couldn't stop laughing. Eliza banged again. I told you a million times not to play with my radio. I mean, clock. A me. We heard her run downstairs, but we knew Eliza wouldn't really tell because then the radio would be taken away, and Eliza wouldn't be able to listen to music either. We lay down on the bed, out of breath, not opening the door in case Eliza was waiting outside to pounce. After a few minutes, there was another knock. My God, what does a girl have to do around here to have some peace and quiet? The Slima whispered in an exaggerated voice like Blair from the Facts of Life. I broke into more laughter. The knock came again, gentle this time. The Slima? Abu? We sat up and she quickly turned off the radio and opened the door. Instead of coming inside, the Slima's father stood outside and peered in. He was different from the other fathers. He read Urdu poetry, kept a vegetable garden, and cooked the most delicious biryani. For the last few years, he'd been sick with an illness no one understood. His work clothes hung on his skeletal frame. Razia, he acted like he hadn't seen me in forever when the truth was, I spent more time at the Slima's house than I spent at mine. Assalamu alaikum, uncle. Wa alaikum assalam. He smiled at me, then turned to the Slima. Berta, what are you doing? The Slima looked at the clock radio guiltily. Nothing, Abu? She tried to change the subject. Are, are you going to work? Ah, yes. Work, work, work. He sighed and came into the bedroom. Did I ever tell you about my first job when I came to America? Uncle took any excuse to sit down and tell a story. He sat now on the edge of the bed. The Slima and I moved over. You know those places that make food very quickly? You mean fast food, Abu? His eyes lit up. Yes. You worked at McDonald's, I asked, amazed. 
He shook his head. No, the other one, the girl with the red hair. Wendy's? That's the one. It was my first day. So the manager gave me an easy job. He said, you, wash the dishes. So I gathered all the dishes. He imitated carrying a large stack of plates and put them in the sink. Then boom, uncle blew his hands up in the air. The sink exploded. What, why? The sleeve when I burst out. I thought it was a sink, but it was really a deep fryer. You know where they make the French fries? <laughs> yes, Abu, I know, but how did you not know? You know American sinks are full of dirty water with dishes soaking in them. <laughs> I thought it was water, not oil. He shook his head. The manager was so angry. They had to close down the kitchen and throw out the oil, very dirty oil. They used it for months. <laughs> the manager said to me, you're fired. But I didn't speak English well then. I didn't know what fired meant. I thought he was saying I started a fire. So I nodded, yes. <laughs> the Slim and I both were trying not to crack up. Well, after that day, the manager was going on vacation. I just kept coming every day. After two weeks, the manager returned. I still didn't know I had no job. I just knew this was the man who was angry at me. So when I saw him, I hid under a table. <laughs> the manager saw me and said, you, what are you doing here? I fired you two weeks ago. <laughs> We couldn't hold it in any longer. The Slim and I burst into laughter, imagining her father getting caught hiding under a table. The Slima's father smiled. It was always this way with our fathers. They made stories of American cruelty seem so funny. The digits of the clock radio caught his attention. Okay, Beta, it's time for me to go. He patted his thighs a few times as if he was revving himself up, then lifted himself slowly. He smiled, looked at the clock radio, and said to the Slima right before walking out the door, you're never alone, Beta. You'll always have me. He was so thin back then, walking away from us, the shadow of the young man inside of him, always tugging at his sleeves. So that, thank you. That's one chapter in the, kind of in the middle of the book. Um, and, you know, I think I, you know, I, I'm just so proud of Sadia, and I can say that because I'm her big sister. <laughs> But, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, what she did was, I actually never published any of the poems I wrote about the Terbela Dam. I, I always would write about Corona, Queens. I often wrote about my mom. So I'm going to read you a poem about our mom. So she has her, her time here too. <laughs> she will be upset if she is ignored. Um, and, but I thought I would also read um, the poem that inspired the entire exhibit, which is not published. Well, now it's published. It will be published. Um, but Sadia has me thinking that maybe my next book will be about our father, which, as you know, she shared passed away in September, um, and the Thurbela Dam, and she's been sharing a lot of her research with me, things that I never knew because um, our dad just never talked, you know? He was very, and, and you know, now when we think about it, we're like, oh, all the, the trauma, right? And, and maybe it was his personality, but also it was what happened to him and his family. Um, and these are stories that I only learned when I went to Pakistan. The last time I was there was 20 years ago when my grandmother was passing away. I was very close to my, my maternal grandmother. And I heard these stories then, I wrote this poem. My Abba's Masjid, which is my grandfather's masjid. These days, there are fish who swim in and out of my Abba's Masjid. The river runs slow and deep, and there are boats that run in the sky like air. The ground where my ancestors' foreheads touched in prayer has turned into the sound of water, the sound of air. 
has been absorbed by the silence of the fish coated on the rocks at the bottom of the riverbed. Where my mother came, a shaking bride, the fish procreate endlessly. Where the women combed out their hair, there are strands of grasses and seaweed, rocks that lay and roll like boulders where our father played in the trees. These days, there are fish who swim in and out of my Abba's masjid. The river runs slow and deep, and all the bones of my ancestors have risen to the surface to knock and click like the sounds of trees in the air. Thank you. Now I'm going to just read two, I think I have time for two poems about my mom. And um, so, you know, again, when I would often write about what it was like for my parents when they first came here, and they came in the 70s, you know, so they were some of the, you know, in Corona, there were not many Pakistanis. And so they experienced a lot of racism. And um, I wrote this poem called Rapunzel's Mother and a Pakistani woman newly arrived in America. Uh, because I think about that fairy tale of Rapunzel and how, um, I don't know a lot of people if they know the background of that fairy tale because I think Disney erased that part, um, which is that the reason she's in that tower in the first place was that her mother was pregnant and had a craving for her neighbor's uh, vegetables and her neighbor was a witch. And so when the father went and stole the vegetables, he was caught and then he promised his first child to her. And I think about that because the kind of um, food scarcity that my mother was coming from, you know, when she came to this country, we have pictures of her in a grocery store, just like beaming, <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, she had to give up her children in that we became, turned out very, very different than she had planned. <laughs> um, Rapunzel's mother, or a Pakistani woman, newly arrived in America. And with a cabbage, a box of eggs so clean, she could easily forget the source of their existence. My mother filled her silver cart and moved in line to make her purchase. The cashier turned a sharp glance at the small brown woman with the pierced nose and covered head. She didn't fit into this, an American supermarket. And what, asked the cashier, are you willing to pay for this? She held the head of lettuce in the air. It reflected off her rhinestone glasses and the hairspray in her hair. But this, said my mother, is America. I thought there was no barter here, hmm, said the cashier. There is give and take all over the world. What made you think you'll be different here? She shook her head in her plastic hair. Well, I have money. My mother tried to act like she didn't care. Her English broke all over her and fell apart in the air. But the cashier cackled, no, 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 my dear. What I want is here. And she pointed a nail, silver painted and crooked at my young mother's stomach, which I had just begun to share. That is the price you'll have to pay, my dear, for this fresh lettuce. Each egg that erupts into a new-blown head shall be the property of this here supermarket, country, and nation. And don't even think of running, because we've got the goods on you. Along with every other immigrant, we've got your passport, your foreign passport, right here. She made to reach into her too tight jeans, but my mother, she ran out of there. The shopping girl openly laughed behind her, and the lines and lines of customers just stood there with their stupid grins. My mother ran, the door opened by itself. My mother ran, but she still found herself in a foreign land, far away from home. Thank you. And I'll stop there, because I'm excited to talk to my sibling, Sadia, um, and have this conversation. <laughs> so, I guess I will start with the first question, or yeah? Or did you want to say anything before we start? Um, well, I'll do a visual um, oh, yes. description. Mm -hmm. So, my name is Sadia Rahman. My pronouns are they, them. Um, I have short, wavy hair. And I'm wearing a black top. 
and gray pants with Doc Martin seated with my sibling Bushra here on stage. Okay. Yes, and thank you. And thank you everyone for joining us out there as well. You know, so I did mention I'm very proud. Um, and you know, I think that there's this, it's a very healing thing and I, I do think it's interesting that this is happening as our father passed away because I, I think, I don't know if any of you have felt this way after losing someone, suddenly you just want to know everything about them, like everything that you never knew about them. And I feel that this project is a beginning of that exploration. Um, and it's a, it's a history that now, you know, our children can have, the nibblings can have. So thanks for doing this work. And I also wanted to say that, um, you know, for us, this is one story of our family, but, you know, as we can see all around us, you know, the indigenous people are displaced from this land and we are in solidarity with all people who are forcefully displaced. Um, and it's so important to tell those stories. You know, where I live in upstate New York, they were trying to build a dam during the pandemic. And I was like fiercely organizing against it because I was like, not again, you cannot do this to us again, you know? So I feel like there is this, um, and we were able to, um, to postpone that project. And you know, the thing about when we talk about clean energy and hydroelectric power, I just want to say this before I forget is that, you know, there is all this funding that's available and sometimes that funding may go to the people who are going to do this building in like a very destructive way, you know? And so when we talk about clean energy, when we talk about hydroelectric power um, and there's funding available for people to do those projects, like who are those people doing those projects and how are they approaching them? And in our organizing, we were able to find so many loopholes in their proposals and that was how we were able to delay the building of the dam in, in the Catskills um, where I live. Um, so I was thinking one of my first questions is, you know, I feel like our ancestors are, are, are with us here. And uh, what are your thoughts on ancestors and artistic creation? Um, and when you were working on these pieces, when you were in Pakistan, I did not go on that trip, but I was so happy that you did. And did you feel our ancestors there? Did you feel them when you were creating this work? The short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, another thing that you have to, you probably figure out about, the both of us is, she has the words, I have the images. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, that, um, I think what you brought up before, it was about, you know, our, you know, our father dying, there was an urgency to kind of capture this story, but it was a story that had been in our lives and in our bodies for years, and then we were seeing it happening over and over again. So this isn't just a past historical timeline, but it's something that's happening as we're sitting here today. So, you know, last year I did go to the Indus River. I wanted to see uh, the village, which is submerged, completely submerged, and it was 184 villages that had been uh, you know, pushed out forcefully um, in the late 60s, early 70s, so that a hydroelectric dam, the Thurbella Dam, could be created. Um, and there's many, many dams on the Indus River. This is just the one dam that had affected my father's family. And so when I went, I went with several family members, cousins, uncles, um, you know, my brother and, you know, 
my sister-in-law and my nephew. And so before going on the journey on this motorboat uh, for two hours in silt, uh, a silt, you know, the, the bottom of the reservoir and the river was completely silt, our motorboat got stuck two hours up the river um, and had to be pushed out um, so that we can return to the shore. But before we got on that boat, I had you know, told everyone I'm going to be documenting this trip. If you don't want to be you know, in the camera, then just tell me um, and I'll, I won't you know, document you or I'll try to like, you know, not have you in the shot. And you know, they were all fine with it. Um, and then I also said, you know, we are, and there were, you know, young kids with us, um, you know, explain the history um, as I did right now, and then also told them, you know, essentially, this is a graveyard that we are riding our, this motorboat on, and um, we just have to remember that. And so I think, you know, when I said that, I did feel my ancestors, as well as several other kind of spiritual leaders on that journey, but also, I think, in the studio. And that was what has been like a special part of making this body of work. This body of work does not end here at the Wex Show. It's the origin, and, you know, it's going to evolve and continue as, you know, as my work usually does with the ephemerality and the evolution of material. So, yeah. How do you feel about ancestors when you, I mean, when you're, when you're writing, you, mean you, sh you mentioned you I, didn't come on the journey, but I feel like we've been, this is like a family history that we've been tracing for years, so. Where do ancestors come in for you? Well, I, you know, it was important for me to come here last night um, and see the work before, because I, I felt like I, it was going to be emotional, and I wanted to like process it. So the uncle I write about in that story, Clock Radio, um, passed away, you know, soon after that scene, and I was talking to Sadia about it, and I was like, it's been 23 years since he's passed away. I can't even believe it. And what I, I think what I'm doing right now, I'm working on the next book, and the next book is going to be all about grief and... Um, Basically, like, that character, that father character is going to pass away. And everything that we've been experiencing, um, you know, with, with the grief, I'm putting that all into this story. And I'm thinking of this uncle and this ancestor because he was um, one of a crew of, of, like, I don't know how many families. There weren't that many. There were, like, five or six Pakistani families that started this Masjid than Queens and... Um, one of my sisters was doing, uh, taking a class on Muslims in America, and it turned out that that masjid is like one of the first Sunni masjids to be built from the ground up. And that's so our father and this uncle was, were very much a part of that history, you know. So for me, like, this entire book is full of ancestors because so many of the aunties and uncles that I write about are no longer with us. It took me almost 20 years to write this book. And in that time, and especially during the pandemic, many people passed away um, in our community. And so a lot of times people ask me, like, well, are you afraid of writing about your community? And I'm like, I'm trying to preserve their memories. I'm trying to preserve what they did and what their struggles were. And um, that's why I write. You know, I think there's so much about honoring and respecting and preserving them and, 
and I, I feel them with me, you know, when I, um, when I write now. Like, when I set that intention, like you did, I can feel them with me, and, and they help me. And, you know, I think this is a, I don't know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's nice to get older and spiritual again. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, and also it's very important to kind of think about that documentation and how we kind of, you know, work with different material, as in like I work with, you know, clay and all the other disciplines, sculpture, video, um, that you see in the gallery space, and then we translate an unwritten kind of story, um, specifically, you know, this, you know, family history in Queens, or even um, the uh, displacement of uh, family members. And so I, I kind of wanted to talk about our siblinghood. <laughs> and so nowadays, and, you know, when this uh, talk was advertised, people had come up to me and they were like, you two are sisters? <laughs> they don't You know, growing it. up, I was always like, Bushra's little sister. <laughs> um, but then also, you know, um, Bushra had done Art Oh My recently, and I, I was also at Art Oh My the summer before, and then she got, you know, oh, you're Sadia's <laughs> sister? I was like, yes. I enjoyed it. Um, I, I like that. Yeah. It, I, <laughs> but it's different when it's like your... Yeah. yeah, and so I thought, you know, I, I was surprised to hear that people were shocked that, um, you know, we were related. And then I was just wondering, like, just want to answer, like, how did that happen? How did the, these two creative people come out of this family of, you know, we're six siblings? Yeah, I, I want you to start yeah. and then I can well, one thing they, they kept saying at Art Omai was like, we've never had two siblings at this residency, you know? I mean, so I guess it's a numbers game because there's six of us, like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, probability. But, <laughs> oh, probability. Um, but then I, I also think, and we were talking about this last night, you know, our parents really let us play a lot. Like, we played a lot. And we, we didn't have a lot of money when we were much younger. And so we didn't have, like, toys. We did, you know, we just, like, we just, it was only our imaginations, you know? And I remember there was an attic, and we would just be in the attic all day in the bad weather, making up uh, movies, stories, you know, just uh, playing together. And I think that that kind of playfulness that we were allowed to have as children, you know, our mom was so fierce, and I write about her a lot in the book and in a lot of stuff, um, and she wanted us to not have the kind of life that she had, and so she took on a lot, and I realize this now, she took on a lot of the domestic labor so that we could just do our homework, um, we could, uh, you know, do go to school, and we wouldn't have to do a lot of that, the drudgery, which now it's bad, because I don't know how to do anything, I don't know how to cook, I don't know, how to, but, um, you know... <laughs> As my poor daughter will attest. <laughs> um, but I think we were, like, we were just allowed that space, you know. Um, and we grew, we're growing up in New York City, you know. So yeah. in New York City, it's like you just you could cut school and just go to the Met. You could just, there's all these, like, galleries. There's, um, I remember bringing Sadia to a, a Shazia Sekunder show when she was really young. Um, and also Sadia moved in with me when she was 18. Um, I was 24. And she was 18 and she moved in with me. And um, I, then she, I was going to all these like openings and shows and things. And so she was just always with me all the time. And um, Yeah, I, I mean, I was also going to say, 
the New York City thing was a big part of it because mm -hmm. we were just running around. And there was, you know, multiple of us. So there, you know, it's, it's a team, it's a soccer team. So <laughs> we were just like running around the city from like sunrise to sunset and possibly after and then just come home. And so that imagination was really important mm -hmm. during that time. And um, yeah, tagging along <laughs> too as the little uh, person. Um, tagging along. Saucy and. Yeah, um, Saucy and all these other, the South Asian Women's Creative Collective, which is a collective, um, I believe, born out of uh, New York City um, of creative South Asian uh, people. And so we, yeah, we grew out of that moment. It was founded in 97 and so we would always be surrounded by, you know, writers and visual artists and theater people and musicians, all of, you know, South Asian descent and... And queer, and, like very yeah, queer, queer collectives. And, and a right. lot of these... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, mm -hmm. go ahead. You go ahead. So, you know, I think a lot of these people... Sorry. <laughs> this is what happens. We will be sorry. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of these people... The, the artists that we were coming up with were just like us. Our parents had come in the 60s or 70s, and they, they knew all about community organizing because, uh, you know, our parents came here, but their siblings could not come here because the Naturalization Act of the 60s that allowed only professionals to come meant that, you know, our dad was like the, one of the youngest of 12 kids. He was the only professional in that way that could come here. So none of his family was here. So his friends were his family. And so I think in these artist collectives, we were creating collectives of like queer South Asian artists of a certain generation. And we were acting like we were all family, you know, like it wasn't just like, you go to a show. It's like you go to a show, you sleep over each other's houses, you move in together, you date each other, you break up, you still stay friends. You, you know, it was just like this constant. And I think those people I met in the 90s are still my chosen family. Um, yeah, they are family friend. now, yeah. So the stories continue, you know, with this, with the chosen family. And I, I think like when that was happening, when I was tagging along and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, in these groups, um, usually I was the youngest person in the group, and so I was like everyone's younger, you know, sibling. And I was doing things like stretching canvases, you know, doing the office managing for someone, um, all these artists. And so, you know, through that work was still making my own work. Uh, Bushra was often writing and reading um, her poetry and we just often just talked about our work and so there was sort of a collaboration and also conversation um, happening about creativity and yeah. yeah. I well know. I feel like we're always each other's sounding boards too and it's, it's right. good to have mm -hmm. just like that one person who you know is going to believe in you and is going to want the best for your work and who is also your ideal audience, like Sadia is my ideal audience. And mm -hmm. so when I write, I'm thinking of Sadia. You know, if I have a question about anything, I trust Sadia's opinion for everything. And it's just amazing to have a person like that in your life that you know will give you the, the honest answer about your work um, and will push it. 
but who will also like celebrate it, you know? And it's, it's really helpful to have that. And I think, you know, even if you don't have a sibling, like there's ways to have believing mirrors in your life just to find mm -hmm. that. I remember Kurt Vonnegut used to say that he wrote for his sister. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm like Kurt Vonnegut. I write for my sister, <laughs> for right. my siblings. Sorry. Also like, mm -hmm. um, I, I think the sounding board is, yeah, often true with my work when I'm in the studio and there's something that's not working. I call Bushra and I'm like, this isn't working. And then she's like, but this, look at this, look at that line, look at that color, look, that reminds me of this. And I was like, oh yeah, okay, let me just keep, and she's like, keep working, just keep going. And then um, that's what kind of helps me move through yeah. <laughs> the day in the studio. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. We have a few more questions. Um, we, yeah, oh, <laughs> about yeah. the primer. <laughs> Should we start? Yeah, let's talk about, about that primer. <laughs> okay, so we were like laughing about this last night because. Um, do you want to tell the and story? We likely, we'll laugh about this here. And then she was like, "Don't <laughs> laugh too much for. because it's very serious." You know, we're in a museum. It's deep, dark work. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> this is what we do. We often like laugh, and so I'm glad that you're seeing this too. So. <laughs> um, well, do you want to tell the story of what happened with the piece that you saw? Um, there's a piece in the show. It's a, it's a bound stack of Urdu primers. And these Urdu primers were primers that um, I had learned Urdu from. My mom uh, brought them back from Pakistan. And then, you know, we read and wrote um, in those workbooks. Um, and, you know, essentially learned uh, poetry and also moral um, stories and fables in Urdu from those primers. And so I had been carrying these primers for years from studio to studio to studio. And then when we got here to this point where I was uh, building the show and, you know, the curator, Dion Custer Edwards, and I were in the studio, we were talking about materiality and, you know, loss and erasure and the family history of displacement. You know, one day I, I spotted the, these stack of primers in the studio and I was, you know, I was like, oh, why not just like make a stack of, you know, Urdu books and I can just retrace the stories and make the paper. And, and then, you know, I kept like looking at this like, and the bound stack was also looking at me and we were having this conversation and then I decided to just bind, like rope these stack of primers, tie it to a rock and submerge it in a vitrine. And so with that, it was evoking um, a stack of Qurans that I had found on this journey that I had talked about earlier um, to the Indus. Uh, this you know, stack of Quran had shown up on the riverbed and the um, most respectful way to discard a Quran is by burning it, burying it, or, you know, submerging it in water. Um, and the title of the piece is Bury It, Burn It, or Drown It um, in the show. And so I wanted to kind of evoke that stack of Quran. It was such a full metaphor um, one would discard a Quran, by the way, if it was illegible, if it was torn, you just couldn't read the words anymore. And you would submerge it in water so that it was even you know, further illegible. You can't read the 
uh, written word, and so the ink kind of uh, disappears over time as the uh, water kind of takes it over and it sits in the pool of uh, water. And so I wanted to evoke this with the um, stack of Urdu primers in the show, and you know I had already done it. Uh, you know the show opened, and I told you know Busher about these primers in in water, and. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, first, I think we, as you were making it, you were like, okay, don't be mad. <laughs> but I'm going to take all of our childhood Urdu primers and destroy them. And I was like, oh, can I have I one? I don't think those were the exact <laughs> words. <laughs> but, Something. yeah. But, like, um, but we were, uh, and, you know, I, uh, one of the things I, where I love the Urdu language, Urdu poetry is so beautiful. I want to dedicate myself to studying Urdu and translating Urdu poetry into English. It's one of my dream projects. And so when we were learning Urdu, when our mom was teaching us, it was from these, like, beautiful primers, and they're very colorful. And one thing that's really funny about them is that when they would print them, the image would always be like slightly out of the lines. I, I can't even describe it, but it would just be like always like slightly out of the lines, like when they did the printing. So I kept saying, well, Sadi, could you just like save me one? And she was like, no. And I was like, just one. I, I just want to have, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm kidding, not that way. Yeah, obviously not that way. You see how Sadia is. <laughs> She's an amazing person. I just, but like, it was yeah, very I know. funny. Yeah, it you was, I, no. I think I did like say a stern no. Yeah, she did. It was. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept being like, but why can't you just say me one? And I still don't understand, but I'll say that what I do understand is that what I did understand was that the emotional, the tiny bit of emotional pain I was having around the loss of that memory and that language and that um, text and that object, what is that compared to what, what we're right. talking about, right? Like, mm -hmm. so my emotional pain is part of this exhibit <laughs> in a different way than you even thought. But, um, but you know, it was just like, it was so visceral. Like, my, my feelings about it were so visceral. And, but then I was like, oh, but look at what everyone lost. I'm just mm -hmm. thinking about one, one Urdu book from when I was a child, you know? And I had such a strong reaction to it. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt like, I think that that's why it's good you didn't listen to me. And um, I'll well, look, go to Pakistan and find some more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's that original primer that our fingerprints are on. You'll mm -hmm. never be able to replicate or find again. Um, um, this isn't but, helping. <laughs> no, but but you know when when Bushra had asked me for you know one of the books, and I'm sure if my s other siblings are watching, they're they're gonna be calling me soon. Like, what? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> um, so you know they, I was thinking you know this has now turned into a material. Th I mean it holds so much memory, but it's now material, and that pain that loss of language, you know, the, the submersion, the tracing, that, that all that history that those primers kind of carry. I didn't want to, you know, destroy it, but I kind of wanted to watch it just like slowly disappear. And that is kind of what is happening all over globally mm -hmm. um, in many ways, uh, not just the, you know, dam infrastructure. There's many ways that these things are happening. And so, yeah, I wanted to do that with the Urdu primers. And then also just thinking about, you know, the language of Urdu. It is the national language of 
Pakistan along with English uh, because Pakistan is a, you know, it was colonized by the British. Um, and so it's, you know, it's not the language of my, our, our family. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it really isn't. Like you hear, you hear Urdu, yes, in poetry and, you know, the ghazals that you, you, I'm sure you've heard of and you've heard it in some Bollywood, older Bollywood movies, often the music is in Urdu, maybe not today because of, you know, right-wing India now. And so uh, there's also, yeah, there's also that part because um, my family speaks Hinko and Pashto, and so those are also disappearing languages. Once the family was um, displaced from this area in the Indus, the language is also changing. Generation, general, what is it? Gener generationally? Thanks. Generationally. <laughs> Tongue twister for me. Um, you know, the younger kids are not speaking Hinko. They are learning Urdu in, in their schools. And so um, Hinko is, you know, it's spoken by uh, all my cousins that are, you know, up to my age and a little older. Um, and so watching that language disappear is, you know, quite, you know, shocking, but also hurtful. Because mm -hmm. um, it's not just, you know, you lose your property, you lose your home, you lose the memory, it's also the tongue. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. so you were like down with Urdu, basically. <laughs> so. It's true, and you know, and, and, and as we all know, the loss of language is the loss of a way of thinking, you know, because for those of you who speak multiple languages, you think differently in every language, you know? And so it is, it's a, it's a much bigger loss when you lose a language. And I remember asking um, our father, because he spoke so many languages, like, what's your favorite language? And he was like, obviously, my mother tongue, Enko. Yeah. And I was like, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. So we open it up to audience questions? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we can open up to questions. Yeah. Hi, thank you both. Maybe not a question, but an observation that maybe you can both speak to. Um, both of you move really fluidly between um, like materials and uh, particular sort of traditions um, and also just like conventions of writing. And so like I, that's something, you know, that seems to be this kind of fluidity. And I'm wondering if you could just speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't mention the text in the, in the show. Um, so there's, you know, multiple... Um, it is a show with many things happening. There's sculpture, there's video, there's um, text, there's also wall drawing, there's the primers, there's uh, monoprints. And so I think, uh, materially, I am now just... Um, it's just coming out of me. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds. Uh, it just. It just is. It. I've never. I've never felt that before as an artist, and I've been um, a visual artist, practicing visual artist for 20 years now, and um, this is the first time that it is like a visceral, like you know, evocation of material. So whatever I can kind of like, you know, grab onto and create. That's what I kind of create with 
And, you know, obviously there's like testing and p things that go in the trash. And, um, and so I think it's really not about uh, just this one material that I want to focus on, but it just like continues to hop from one material to the next, to text, to video, to, you know, other media. And I think that happens just because of the content. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that word fluidity because it ties into our water theme. And, you know, I remember when I was, I, I got an MFA program and they were like, well, if you're doing fiction, you can't take poetry classes. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense, you know, because for me, writing in multiple genres, it's where I'm at in my life. Like I started writing poetry because it was all I had time and space for. And then as I got older, I was able to write prose. I think it's amazing to kind of explore material um, from many different angles. And I even want to do comedy. I want to do music. I want to write a screenplay. I, I want to translate. There's so many things I want to do because I feel like, I, but it's always going to be exploring the same material, you know? And I think that to explore material from many dimensions, it's so joyful. It can be so joyful, you know? And healing. Like, I think one thing we haven't talked about is the healing part of art practice, you know? I always came to writing as a healing practice. I teach writing um, as a healing practice because I do feel like there's a way that when we write down our stories, when we take ownership of our own stories, um, especially if we are uh, marginalized people in, in any way, we are um, showing pride in our lives and, and, and caring for our lives in a way that maybe we are not experiencing in the outside world. We're giving our lives like such deep respect. And I think that's why I always start from the autobiography and move from that place because um, I want to honor my life and the lives of, of our, my family and community. Yeah, and also that reminds me what you just said is that, you know, when I started working, I started working out of grief. And um, I wasn't looking at it as like a healing method and it probably was it probably saved me but i feel like it was um also the only way that i could communicate and so whenever i'm in the studio or whenever i'm making i'm the most happiest yeah. and i whenever i like exit the most happiest i'm still like that just keeps me up I know a lot of people are always like, why are you always laughing? All these terrible things always happen to you. And then I'm like, because I'm, I'm always writing. I write every day. I have communities where I meet with other writers and artists. And it's like, it's such a joyful way to, to live. And that's why art, I mean, I love public programming like this. I, what are museums? And because we need, we, we need art so much. I know you all know this. I don't have to tell you, but yes. Thank you for that question. Hello. So you, you, you said you're both kind of like surrounded by like art and like sort of artists and like kind of creating and playing from like a young age. Mm -hmm. So at like what point did either you sort of decide like, oh, I'm going to just be a writer or, or I'm going to be a visual artist. Was it kind of like a conscious like, okay, this is what I'm going to focus on mm -hmm. or did it sort of like emerge? Yeah. I mean, I remember that very day. It was when... Um, it was in 1997, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> or like 96, <laughs> September 10th, um, it was, yeah, 
it was in 1996 or seven, and I was at, in high school at that time, and I'm the type of person who likes to know what's next. I like the planning. And um, I was like, I'm not, I don't know what I'm going to major in in, in uh, undergrad. And Busher was like, ah, it'll come to you, don't worry. And, um, you know, there's time for that in undergrad, but I was like, I want to know right now. And so we were in New York City. I had, you know, come in and uh, we were hanging out. We went to Pearl Paints, rest in peace. Um, and then we, you know, looked through the Village Voice, rest in peace. Um, and then we were looking through to see what gallery shows were around and we were just going to go gallery hopping in um, at the time, Soho, in New York City, and we were flipping through the Village Voice and Shazia Sikander at Deitch Projects. And, you know, for a Pakistani ear and tongue, Shazia Sikander is a super Pakistani name. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? And we, had, we just ran to that show, and I saw it. And I, you know, at the time, I didn't know any Pakistani artists. Um, the, actually, the group that we were in was, you know, mostly Indian um, artists. And, you know, slowly then, you know, it was Sri Lankan, Bangladeshi, and then us two Pakistanis were there. Um, and so seeing, you know, Shazia Sikandar's work, I, had, I actually met her last week and it was amazing. I told her this story and she was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think that very day, as soon as I saw that show, that kind of opened the door for me because I was like, oh, I can do this too. I mean, yeah, not in the same way, but I think, yeah, just having her name out there, um, I thought I could do it too, so, yeah. I mean, for me, I always loved writing, but I never thought I could make a living from it or in any kind of way be a working writer because, again, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm closer to 50 than anything, so I, there was no, yeah, again, there were no Pakistani writers. Even this book, it's funny that it's getting all this, like, applause because it took me like over 10 years to try to find a publisher like no one wanted to publish it and for me the writing was always for something I did for myself and I would just work all kinds of other jobs like work at bookstores um, I loved work that's one of my favorite jobs and then um, I worked in, as a caterer I was just always working I never got another like real like job job because I always was like I'm gonna be um, I want to be writing. If I get, the only time I got a job job was when I was a public school teacher for three years and I helped start a school in Queens. But that's when I was like, if I do this, I'm never going to write, you know? Um, and so it was always a hustle, a lot of poverty, a lot of hustle. Um, and, but I just knew that this was something I always needed to do for myself. And so step by step, you know, um, you know, one thing would lead to another. Like one friend would say, oh, why don't you send to this publisher? Oh, that agent is looking for someone. And so it was, and it was always within community. You know, it was like, I think Colonize This, the book I did when I was young, which is a collection of essays. I'm the, the co-editor, my friend Daisy Hernandez. Uh, there's 28 essays from amazing writers writing about their relationship as people of color with feminism. 
And that happened because I was at an open mic. I was performing and Daisy came up to me and was like, hey, you want to co-edit a book with me? And I was like 25 and I was like, sure. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that meant, how much work it was. Um, but I sometimes say our family is um, doing better now, but the kind of, I feel like, uh, under-resourced way I grew up made it very possible for me to live as an artist and not need a lot <laughs> and just only do my art all the time and only think about that and and yet the the wealth I feel like I have in terms of like quality of life and experience is just like nothing um, I, I always tell my my student you know my students that like you have no idea when you start on this path of art like what's gonna happen it's incredible you know anything can happen. Um, yeah, so I, I do, and I, I, one of my other favorite jobs was I, and it was a flexible kind of job, where I would go into the, all the public schools in New York City and teach poetry to children through this organization called Teachers and Writers Collaborative, which was started by Je Jude Jordan and Kenneth Koch because of the terrible arts funding for <laughs> in New York City public schools. Um, and I love that job because I loved writing poetry with children, you know? So yeah, I think I, I was always working other things. I think this is one of the first times in my life at this age, almost 50, that I can now mostly make a living from writing. Yeah, yeah and also I forgot to say that Obviously, Bushra was an influence, too, because, you know, I would watch Bushra be, like, traveling and on open mics, you know, all of that, um, and I was like, I, I want to do that, too. It sounds so fun. I, and also, while Bushra and Daisy were editing the book, we were living together in an attic, um, and we were both, you know, making and eating back peanut butter attic. sandwich. Yeah, back in the <laughs> attic, uh, eating peanut butter sandwiches and just like, you know, living our lives. And so it sounds um, utopic, but it was very difficult. Um, but I think we both had this, like, goal. Um, we really wanted just to make our work. Um, and yeah. And Daisy writes about your art yes. that you were making in Colonize This. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a project she did when you were 19? Yeah. Yeah, so Daisy actually, in, in the intro to Colonize This, writes about Sadia's work. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I understand some of like the themes uh, in the um, exhibit. Um, like, um, having followed your work um, previously, I like noticed, okay, this is my second time seeing it. So like I noticed like themes of surveillance come up as well. I understand like the, the themes of like ancestor veneration a lot as well, like and resonated with that previously. Um, what I uh, don't understand um, clearly is uh, how the genes uh, piece fits mm -hmm. into these themes mm -hmm. um, and I think it's both of your, like, fabric, right? Like, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just um, wondered if you both could talk about that. And um, I haven't read your work before, but your words have already offered so much solace, so I really can't wait to read your book. Uh, thank, you. thank you both for being here. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you for that question and that comment. And so uh, the gene work. I want my um, jeans back, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. After the show. After the show. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, the gene work. So the work in the show, uh, there, you know, I had been a resident, um, artist-in-resident at the Wexner Center for three years, and so had been working on this body of work uh, since the beginning. And so what you see in the show is just a selection of uh, work from three years. And um, that denim piece is one of the first pieces I made. Um, thinking about this theme. And so I was, again, I'm always collecting material. And if I find multiples of it, I just keep it and it goes with me from, and it's really, you know, very heavy stuff sometimes, and, but it comes with me every, everywhere I go, um, much like the Urdu primers. And so the genes, I was, I just started collecting, um, you know, my old genes, um, Bushra's old genes, and also, you know, my partner's old genes, and um, I didn't know what I was going to do with them. I didn't even think, you know, why am I collecting these two, you know, people's genes with mine? <laughs> um, and so I just started uh, stripping them, you know, one day, and just, I wasn't even, you know, thinking about really the content of, like, what exactly this means, or... Um, I had this umbrella kind of uh, theme that I wanted to explore, the tracing of my family's history um, and their, you know, displacement um, from this area, from this body of water, the Indus River. And so just started, you know, cutting the jeans into strips and then stitching them together and then placing them in different forms. And then it became this kind of long banner um, that you see in the gallery space, and um, about 122 inches by approximately like 19 inches, 20 or 22 inches. And I, you know, when I stepped back, I was also thinking about, you know, how much water it takes to create jeans. Like that was never part of the story when I was making it, but, you know, stepping back after making it, like how much water does it take to create these jeans? And usually like jean... Um, or denim factories are often along riverbeds, uh, like the Colorado River, and it kind of sucks the river's energy to create the electricity and the energy to, to make um, these genes. And so that's, that's kind of where that work um, came out of. But Yeah, and uh, you know what I love about that? I love that piece so much, and I know someone at some point wanted to buy it and you were like they're not the right person to have it <laughs> it's a sacred it's like sacred um you know and and I was like at first I was like but Sadia and then and then you were like no it's the right person has to have it if I'm you know um if I'm going to because it's like it was special to you yeah you know yeah so I think we're about at time, but I want to invite everyone to continue to hang out, check out the store. Busher will be around if you want a book signed. We can have some snacks and continue the conversation. Thank you so much, Sadia and Busher. Yes, thank you so much thank you for all. Wax. Thank you. So much. <laughs>
For more information about our exhibitions and all things WEX, go to wexarts.org. For the Wexner Center for the Arts, I'm Melissa Starker. Thanks for listening.